A recent UN report on the occupation of Crimea has revealed the extent to which Russia has appropriated, stolen, and damaged various Ukrainian and Crimean cultural sites. This week, we explore these atrocities at the historic site of Hersenats and the extent of the damage that various Russian organizations have caused. On the 10th of September, the UN published a report on the situation in uh, Crimea, and it was titled The Follow-Up of the Situation in the Autonomous Republic of Crimea, Ukraine. And basically, they were looking at, um, you know, what's happened over the seven years of the occupation, and they mentioned that the situation in regards to human rights has deteriorated significantly. So this report was also aided by um, Amnesty International and as well as information from the Council of Monuments and Sites. And so when we look closer into this deterioration of um, human rights, they mentioned that systemic political persecution, physical and psychological pressure, annihilation of independent media, discrimination on the basis of religion, violation of ownership and language rights has forced more than 45,000 Crimean Tatar and Ukrainians to leave the occupied peninsula. The Russian Federation continues to prosecute ethnic and religious communities that refuse to recognize the illegal occupation and preserve their native language, religious and cultural identity. So that last part is the part that we're kind of going to be looking more into today. And that's the um, uh, preservation of native um, cultural identity, because as part of Russia's persecution there, they've actually been conducting um, illegal excavations and cultural appropriation. So the the um, the report mentions that Russia has appropriated Ukrainian cultural property in on the peninsula, including 4,095 national and local monuments that were under state protection. Such appropriation is a violation of international law. However, Russia uses such actions to implement its long-term strategy to strengthen its historical, cultural, and religious dominance over Crimea's past, present, present, and future. So when we look more, a little more close, closely into this cultural appropriation, they've been doing uh, illegal exporting of artifacts, They've been conducting unauthorized archaeological excavations and they've been erasing traces of the cultural presence of the Crimean Tatars on the peninsula as well. So this is pretty devastating and it kind of, as it mentioned, it goes to Russia's long-term goal of essentially taking over the culture of the Crimean Tatars and the Ukrainian culture that was there and attempting to paint it as if it was part of Russia's greater culture and it's part of their uh, their own heritage. So let's jump into a little bit um, specifically which site we're going to be talking about today. Alexa, which site are we talking about? Thanks, Nathan. Um, so today we thought we would dive into probably the most iconic monument in Crimea, which is the ancient Greek colony of Khersonas. And this, um, if you imagine it, probably its most famous um, site is the Basilica, the 1935 Basilica, which is a bunch of columns and a bit of a wall. That's all that survived since ancient times. Now, Khersonas was founded more than two and a half thousand years ago, settled by Greeks from the Hierasilia Pontica 
which is in northern Turkey on the coast of the Black Sea. And it was established around the 6th century BC. And the name Hersonas itself in ancient Greek means peninsula, and it aptly describes the site of which the city is located on. And for much of its history, Hersonas was ruled as a democracy. However, over time, the city transformed into more of an oligarchy, where different ruling families would vie between themselves for power. And it rose to prominence most uh, famously during the Roman slash Byzantian empires, where it was a popular spot to exile um, important figures who were too high up to kill. And for example, Pope Clement I was exiled to Hersonas. And I think you know a little bit more about Pope Clement, Nathan. I'm pretty sure if my history is correct, isn't that the guy who was uh, thrown into the Black Sea and tied to an anchor? Yeah. Yep, and that's why his like official um, coat of arms or whatever for the Vatican is, has the anchor on it. Yeah. And, um, so then, of course, history progressed, and the city remained in Greek, Roman slash Byzantine hands up until the nine hundred 980s, when it fell to Kievskurus, when Volodymyr the Great captured the city during one of his many conflicts with the Byzantine Empire. And as part of a deal that he struck with the Byzantines, um, he agreed to evacuate the fortress in exchange for the emperor's uh, sister's hand in marriage. And sort of this is one of the rumored stories as to why Kievskurus became an Orthodox nation, because as part of the deal, Volodymyr had to consent to becoming a Christian and he got baptized, like it is rumored that he was baptized in Khersonas, and that's where he became Christian. So yeah, um, and then Khersonas' history kind of has a slow decline. So after the Fourth Crusade, when um, Constantinople fell to the Crusaders, the city became a principality. After that, it fell under the control of the Genoese in the 13th century, and then was sacked by the Mongols, and it survived the Black Death, but only just. And the last mention of the city is in 1396, and it is assumed that within a decade or two, the city must have been abandoned because there's no more mentions of the city. And then this brings us to modern-day Ukraine, where in 2013, Ukraine had it listed as a World Heritage Site under the title of Ancient City of Churik Khersonas. Andrei, do you want to talk a little bit about more what they found at Khersonas? So the first excavation in Khersonas started in 1827 by the Russian government, and it's now become a popular tourist attraction as well as a protected archaeological park. So some of the buildings that they found have a mix of influences of Greek, Roman, and Byzantine culture, and they have a defensive wall that was roughly 3.5 kilometers long and three and a half to four metres wide and about eight to ten metres high, with towers every couple of ten to twelve metres. They also found uh, tombstones that hinted at a burial practice that were different from the Greeks, where instead of each stone marking a tomb of a whole family, it instead represent, uh, was a tomb of an individual, and it was the decoration... Sorry, and the decorations only included objects like sashes and weapons instead of burial statues. Uh, again, the 1935 Basilica is one of the most famous basilicas that have been excavated, 
and like uh like before it was mentioned that it its original name is unknown so that is why it's referred to the 1935 basilica to the year it was opened the 1935 basilica is assumed to be uh, a type of synagogue or a small temple that dates back to the early days of Christian Christianity. So found from the archaeological sites, there are around 200,000 small items from 5 AD to the 15th century, and over 5,000 of which are currently exhibited in the museum. Some of these items are ancient texts, including the Oath of Hersonet Citizens, which is from the 3rd century BC, and it decrees in honor of Diophantus from the 2nd century BC. A collection of coins, a mosaic of black and white pebbles and colored stones, ancient ceramics, archaeological fragments including ancient and medieval abacuses, reliefs and the remains of ancient murals. Overall, a very important historic site in the history of Crimea and its development, wouldn't you say, Nathan? Yes, absolutely. Um, so it's a shame that there's now been this attempt to kind of uh, rebrand it as uh, part of Russian heritage and try to justify the annexation. So when looking a little further into what exactly is happening at Khersenats, Brianna, what's, what's going on specifically with the site? Uh, yeah, just before I get into that, I wanted to provide a little bit of a background. So in 1954, um, there was this treaty that was signed um, called the Hague Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property in the Event of Armed Conflict. Um, now, this is the first international treaty that focuses on the protection of cultural property in armed conflict zones. So, in other words, it protects cultural sites in places that have been taken over by someone else to ensure that culturally significant items are not destroyed or appropriated by these occupying forces. Um, so as of September 2018, it had been ratified by 133 states, including Russia. But since June of this year, the Russian occupying authorities and scientific institutions have been excavating with heavy equipment uh, on the site and are destroying Ukraine's cultural heritage. So what they've been doing is they've transferred some Crimean artifacts to Russia without any security justification or Ukrainian approval, which is usually required by international law of occupation. Um, so they didn't appeal to Ukraine as a former occupying power to obtain this permission to carry out any work or restoration near the monuments on the peninsula. Um, and then they've gone and taken these artifacts and showcased them at exhibitions to celebrate Russia's own cultural heritage. Uh, numerous unsanctioned archaeological excavations are taking place and these findings are often unlawfully exported to Russia or end up on the black market. Uh, the ancient city has been used for damaging religious and entertainment purposes. Muslim burial grounds have been demolished to build a highway which leads to the new Kerch Bridge uh, connecting the peninsula to Russia. And uh, not to mention that they've uh, restored the Bakhchisarai Palace in a distorted way. And what's more, the actual site of Hersonat has been illegally registered in the Russian law as the State Historical and Archaeological Museum Reserve Charsonat Tavria. Um, so in other words, they've gone and turned it into a completely different Russian museum that's uh, completely 
ignoring the Crimean heritage that is part of it. Yeah, and adding on to that, Brianna, when you mentioned before that they've been using it for like uh, damaging purposes, um, if you go onto the website that they have set up for the um, the site, yeah, they're, they're booking uh, tours all around the place. Um, so it's basically now becoming a, like a major, major tourist attraction, um, most likely in the interest of uh, presenting all of these uh, restorations and trying to put that new image of Hersenats uh, out there. And because of the new, the, this massive influx of people, it's now having a damaging effect on the site. So all of this is in the interest of Russia trying to take over Hersenats for its own um, or as a part of its own heritage. So I was just curious of Justin, what do you think some of the effects of this is going to have, this cultural appropriation will have? Thanks, Nathan. So I think overall, uh, like so many things when it comes to Russia and Ukraine and parts of Ukraine like Crimea, whether we're talking about Ukrainian history or Crimean history or Crimean culture, Ukrainian culture, there seems to be a concerted effort on the part of the Kremlin and then by extension, I guess, the Russian state to look to look to ways to try and take history that you know is obviously a shared heritage at the, at the worst side or purely Ukrainian Crimean heritage on the other side um, and really appropriate that to be Russia's own history and its own I guess legacy um, and the report that you mentioned earlier the UN report had a sort of I guess a concluding statement it was it was a pretty I guess um, it was probably a bit of a softer statement than you would like to see, but it did kind of summarize this effect in a nice way. So it's said that these actions aim to weaken the fundamental role of indigenous Muslim uh, people in the history of Crimea before the annexation. And through these methods, the Russian Federation provides ideological and historical justification for its occupation of the region. And I guess, as I mentioned just before, whether it's East, the, the war in Eastern Ukraine or whether it's the complete occupation of Crimea. In all these things, uh, I think the central, I guess, propaganda role of, of the Russian state has been to try and make sure that in both cases, the historical legacy, the traditions, the ancient history that comes from both of these regions is, whether it's Kievan Rus or Crimea, is given a, a redistribution or a re a re is rewritten in a way that allows to say, that really these are extensions of Russian culture and not uh, unique cultures that yeah, still exist. So the more that they have this opportunity, especially in these territories in um, Crimea, the more they have the opportunity to actually, you know, destroy what they want to destroy, preserve what they want to preserve, and then reappropriate and, and restore in a distortive way whatever they want to restore. Um, obviously, he's causing a lot of damage uh, to... Crimean history, um, and it, uh, arguably, if you know, if the war escalates in Ukraine and more of Ukraine is invaded, um, the same very thing could happen uh, to to all of the history associated with the Kozakir, um and then the Hetmane, and obviously uh, Kiev and Rus. Yeah, the part that I found interesting was that um, when I was first researching this, I thought they're going to use. And, and they have been, they've been using, you know, archaeologists or people that work in the field. But um, the, the, there was a section in the report that also mentioned that some of the organizations that have been carrying out this, you know, the restoration, the excavations aren't actually either qualified or don't have the right 
um, equipment to do so. So one of the organizations was the Russian Geographical Society, um, and that's what the UN listed, um, sorry, not the UN, the International Council on Monuments and Sites. They listed the um, Russian Geographical Society as one of the examples because on their website, they've been posting articles of the different things that they've uncovered um, at um, Khersonats and the surrounding sites. And so I thought it was very interesting that, you know, why would a, you know, a, a um, excavations be done by a society that's supposed to be in the interest of, you know, science? But then I looked at the board of trustees for this particular society and the chairman of the board of trustees of the Russian Geographical Society is this guy, uh, Vladimir Putin. And uh, maybe you heard Little of him. Little heard of and person. <laughs> yeah, I know. And so on their main website there, they, there's actually a quote from him and, and he says, the activity of the Russian Geographical Society is aimed at promoting patriotism. One cannot work for the society without love to one's homeland and native land. So I thought that was fascinating that it's no longer about, although the aim of this society isn't about uncovering the facts and letting the facts, um, you know, guide you. It's about patriotism first. So then the facts have to suit the patriotism. I thought that was fascinating. But it comes back to the old quote that history is written by the victors. Right? That's true. Um, and unfortunately, um, I think the, the UN Convention, and I think the um, even this particular, I guess, protections that came under the Hague Convention, it, it, it's all unfortunately designed for a probably slightly different time in the sense that really when we use the example of the Second World War, there was a lot more probably overt, complete destruction of historical artifacts and monuments Um and that does not to say that's not happening here because we've had some examples mentioned that that's happened. But I think here it's much more that appropriation and that's the wording that's used in the report. It's, it's, it's almost, it's more sinister and sly because it's actually really just appropriating things, you know, carefully by you know, mixing some fact with a lot of fiction, but enough fact and enough. And like you mentioned, having someone say it who has some expertise enough to have the expertise, but it's putting their nation first instead of the science or the, you know, the history first. So there's there's a lot of very, I guess, dangerous elements coming together in a state-sponsored way to really produce the kind of historical legacy that I think we've said on this show many times, Putin arguably needs to, you know, maintain this perception of the glory of Russia. And building on your Sten's point, even on a simpler day-to-day level, in 2017, Russia released a brand new uh, ruble note, which was the 200 rubles, which was solely dedicated to Crimea. And on one side, you had the monument to sunken ships in the center of Sevastopol. And on the obverse side was the view of Khersonas, specifically the 1935 Basilica. And then later on, uh, they also released a commemorative banknote, which has the Swallow's Nest um, Palace and again the Sunken Ships Monument on a commemorative 100 ruble note in honor of the annexation. And on like a subliminal level, like because if a tourist comes, obviously you, you look at the banknotes because it's a country advertising its history on it and they'll see Crimea. And it's another way that Russia's trying to solidify its claim over the bite, over the peninsula. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And I think it's, you know, we've, we've talked already on this podcast several times about this stuff isn't just very sinister and, and subtle. A lot of this stuff is getting very overt. Like, where would you ever imagine that a leader of a country, the president of Russia, would write a, or at least have his name to, a huge essay 
that talks about the reasonings why Ukraine and Russia are one people and that you know the history of the Kievan Rus isn't really a separate history, it's just the history of our country. I mean, these are things that aren't even trying to be as subtle or, you know, revisionist in ways that I guess are, you know, maybe more slick. This is actually just becoming very overt now. Um, and the more time that passes with this occupation, uh, the more difficult it's going to be for Ukraine to restore its sovereignty and integrity of its borders. Um, so I just have one more question. What do you guys think? Do you think there's going to be a big international response to this? Um, or do you think it's kind of just going to be put aside? Because, I mean, stuff like this really can't be undone once the restoration has been done and once, you know, sites have been dug up and shipped off to Russia. So, I mean, it's either going to have to happen soon to prevent it or nothing's going to be done. So what do you think should be the response? In, in my opinion, I think it, it'll come out, it'll, they'll say one thing and then it'll turn out that they won't actually do it. So they obviously say that um, nothing should be moved or restored until Ukraine has access to the site again and all this stuff. And then what's probably going to end up happening is um, Russia will just ignore it and do their fake restorations of the site and collect or build whatever they want there. And uh, from what they've, all the artifacts that they've collected will be taken back to some museum in Russia, really. I think with like the whole Nord Stream 2 thing now and the US looking to put any extra uh, sanctions on, I think it's just all going to get buried in all of that. Yeah, look, my, my depressing uh, perspective, my pessimistic perspective on this is unfortunately that um, different cultures have different values to the majority of the Western world, unfortunately. And I think while there's a lot of well-meaning people who are learned enough to understand the impact, for a lot of people, any historical significance in Crimea, whether Greek or, or Crimean, is probably beyond most people's sphere of understanding which makes it difficult to appeal for the case in the general populace. And I mean, I think the example I'd give is, um, has everyone seen the film The Monuments Men with George Clooney? Has anyone seen that? I've heard of it, but I didn't see it. Yeah, I've seen bits of it. (laughs) So that film's actually about a true story, about a slightly embellished true story in terms of the film script, but the actual the concept was true, which was that there was a special unit of military uh, assembled from Britain and the US to go through as they were, um, as the war was winding up in the Second World War and they were gaining more of the German territories, was going into a lot of the um, kind of silos or um, banks of cultural art that's been, that was stolen by the Nazis and actually trying to recover or even sometimes save particular works from further destruction or in the whole, I guess, uh, scorched earth policy. So there was a lot of, obviously, as as mentioned by Brianna, the the Hague Convention was really written as a response, uh, you know, to kind of stop <laughs> what happened in World War II from happening, part, you know, in large part to what the Nazis did with the cultural history and the cultural artifacts of Europe. But I think that the difference there is that... Um, I'm not sure. Maybe the, my question is, is the difference there that it was, you know, so total or it perceived to be such a brutal and so complete as opposed to a small region? Or or is it more that people were more learned or had more, um, placed more importance on cultural artifacts at that time as a general global global community? Or, you know, 
I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm curious why there was such an impetus put on it in that particular process and whether the same thing would be said to be, you know, it doesn't see the same things happening in Crimea's case at least. Hmm. I'm, I'm curious. Maybe it's because like Germany was the focal point of the war in Europe. And whereas the, and like you said, it was a region that's only been annexed. It's, it, I think the world might see it differently. Um, and the other thing you also mentioned before was that this is a little, little bit more sly in the sense that they're putting it as, oh, no, no, we're restoring the site. Oh, no, no, we're doing, we're doing good. We're, ex- we're excavating. Whereas the Nazis were literally like stripping the amber room in, uh, I can't remember which palace it was, and taking all of the treasures and stuff like that. So it was a bit more overt for the Nazis. And also the Nazis were on the world stage. Like it kind of reminds me of um, like when ISIS was destroying those cultural artifacts in Syria. That, went, that was everywhere on the news. Whereas because well, at the time ISIS was a strong focal point, of um, the news, well, Crimea has kind of fallen off, you know, the, the global stage when it comes to world news. So I guess people have just kind of forgotten about it. Yeah, you're right, Nathan. And maybe that's the difference. Maybe appropriation is quite sinister in the sense that, because I wouldn't say the Nazis were always appropriating. There were some things they were appropriating, but a lot of the time they were just, you know, taking, destroying or hiding. <laughs> um, mm. But, you know, I guess you could look at things that are in the... Um, the English museums, like, you know, the relics of Tutankhamun, those things are obviously all being you know, taken from the areas and, and not necessarily given back to the region that has a sovereign state now to keep in their museums, which is, you know, problematic in its own way. But I guess it's not, um, they're, they're considered they're considered bad because you're taking something away from somebody else or another culture. The cleverness about this approach with the appropriation, especially in Russia's example, is they're kind of trying to say, yeah, we are taking this, but it's because it's ours. And that's, yes. the, that's the sinister distinction of, of what's being done here, even though their claim for it being theirs is nebulous. And at best, yeah, at best they could say, it's not just yours, it's not just Ukraine's, and it's not just Crimea's, it's also ours. But they're not really presenting that narrative in any way, nor are they preserving that aspect of the story. So I think it is quite dangerous, and I'm not sure if the current conventions and the current structures are really in place to be able to compete against, to be able to respond to this effectively on the global stage. In the news this week, the Ukrainian World Congress has reported that Ukrainian has become an official language in the Brazilian city of Prudentopolis. The decision was supported unanimously by the Prudentopolis City Council. As reported in our recent episode on Ukrainians in South America, Many of the Prudopolis' residents are descendants of Ukrainian immigrants from Galicia. Ukraine's parliament has voted to remove Dmitry Razumkov as chairman of the Verkhovna Rada. The vote was supported by 284 deputies. Whilst initiated by President Zelensky's Servant of the People Party, the vote was carried due to the support of minor parties and independent deputies. Five deputies had nominated themselves to replace Razumkov, however Ruslan Stefanchuk, servant of the People Party and former representative of the President to Parliament was the eventual winner and clear favourite in the race. Ukraine's aviation market continues to expand. Low-cost carrier Wizz Air has announced their assumption of the KF Stockholm route. The route will be flown two times a week. Ryanair has also launched a new route, Lviv-Manchester, which will operate twice a week. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us next week for more UK Life Abroad content.